Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Alec, how are you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you. I'm very good. As you can see, I've got a change of self. I'm actually back home in Birmingham. Some people thought that my mum would be on the show this episode, but no, not this week. No, nice. Well, yeah, it's good to see you. Good to see you in your, in your natural habitat for once. Thank you, sir. So uh, importantly, who are you, Jack? Who am I? Is that, is that your accent creeping in? no 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 don't be so uh, don't be so coy this is this week's episode we're talking about digital identity and that's the that's the element we want to cover right who are you how do you prove who you are yeah exactly um slightly cheesy inroad but it's 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 an important it's an important way to start i think because yeah today we are talking about digital identity which is you know a big big topic in in web3 and also slightly philosophical. I know we got philosophical, but AI, maybe we won't go that far today, but it does invoke the question about, you know, what is identity at its core? So yeah, who am I and how do I prove it? That's that's kind of the central, central, central question we're gonna be thinking about today, right? Exactly, I mean, we kind of referenced identity a lot in previous episodes, like proving who you are. We kind of mentioned in the AI episode, how do you prove that someone is real? How do you prove, you know, the, the, the provenance of deepfake, all these kind of things. But I think it's, it's it's a huge topic, digital identity. We'll kind of see a bit later that a lot of the aims of digital identity uh, kind of align with the aims of Web3. And you kind of need both to have like a successful implementation of either. Um, but yeah, should we kick off in the, the way that we always kick off by going back to ancient book times? Yeah, why not? I think it's good to let's recap overall the the concepts and history of identity itself. And then we can move on a little bit to uh, digital identity and what, and what that means in Web3. So, yeah, what, what do you know about ancient history and identity? Have you got any, <laughs> have you got any thoughts? Uh, identity early on in like, a, I suppose, in, in most things that we spoke about, we go back to ancient times. It was super simple. You know, you had really small communities, small tribes of like less than 150 people. And identity was just what you could remember about someone, right? It's really hard to, to fraud an identity when I, I know Jack on a personal level. I know all of his negative traits and he can't he can't uh, lie about those because I'll, I'll hold him to account. So identity early on was super simple. You didn't have to worry about, you know, kind of identity moving from place to place so much because you know, it was just the, the people in your tribe and they knew and they had a history of you and there was rumors and gossip about the person. So it was quite simple in the ancient times, I assume. 
Yeah, and and the problem of verifying identity kind of maybe didn't exist to such an extent because you 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 kind of already know you've already pre-verifying people based on who you know um, and to, to yeah as you say to forge someone's identity is much more related to you know uh, wearing a mask or, or changing your hair color or, or whatever you know trying to <laughs> visit physically impersonate someone right which which is kind yeah, of a, yeah important this is way way pre-digital so the only way you could impersonate someone was with some some physical changes you could make yeah well i'm not going to go down the route of philosophy but if you've read the book sapiens you know that there was a hard limit on the amount of people we had in the tribe about 150 people because that is the maximum number of people that we could actually remember characteristics and qualities on uh, which is mm. super interesting but as societies grew and became more complex we actually needed forms of identification um, that kind of came into play, like seals and badges um, and letters of introduction that kind of attested to something. You know, you could say, like, this person is a good person. This person has a criminal record. This person is very good at making metal and things like that. So as society grew more complicated and we had to move from, say, tribe to tribe, for example, we actually needed to prove our identity and maybe more importantly, our credentials, what we could actually do from this one tribe to the next tribe. And we can think about this as like portability is probably the Web3 term that we probably use to describe this, right? Yeah. And as, as you get to kind of like, you know, the Middle Ages and things, you start seeing these uh, these heraldries and, and coats of arms you get to, to describe different tribes or different factions of people. And I wonder how much of that is a consequence of things like the need to go to war, right? Because you need to identify which side you're on by what color you're wearing and what flag you're, you're marching under. I mean, I think in Game of Thrones, uh you know that that's a good example that's a good example of that kind of early um group identity system you, you might you might have yeah yeah when we bring this back to like you know, the web 2 web 3 model i imagine like the lord of the area whose coat of arms you wore that's like the central authority right and you've been kind of bestowed this this uh with the coat of arms that actually on behalf by, on behalf of that on behalf of that central authority i imagine that's how i think about it yeah yeah and, and also you, that's i think you, you definitely have a clear example coming in there as as we have more tribal or um or international wars throughout history the need to verify someone's identity as part of those clans became much more important you know to be able to to, to root out if someone was infiltrating from you know behind enemy lines for example you needed some some way of, of trying to identify them and obviously that would be something like a code word or something but it, it doesn't get to the heart of individual identity right it's still just a tribe-based thing yeah, well, I, I, I don't know why you're so focused on war. Like, is that going to be like your use case throughout? It's all about war through the ages. Yeah, I actually, I didn't, I didn't plan this. I mean, I just, it just kind of came into mind. I was like, well, if we're talking about coats of arms, then uh, Game of Thrones makes me think of of war too much. But yeah, I mean, I guess that that covers the kind of very early, the early systems and the and the first few hundred thousand years or or something of um of human civilization. And then by kind of the 19th century, you then start getting more formal versions of identity issued and you and you get this concept of identi identification issuance, right? By governments, you have state issued identities, passports and things that form as your kind of centralized form of identification coming from a central party like your state, um, rather than in, in identity just being this, um, uh, this kind of uh, local concept you have um, amongst people. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that happened in like the, the 19th century, right? And then kind of advancing from that, we had more kind of, well, I guess better attestation 
or identity. It wasn't just like, you know, we talked before about ownership saying I have this piece of paper. So that means that it's mine and it, it kind of it, it means something for me specifically. But then we kind of moved into the realm with more technology as technological advancements kind of increased our fingerprints and photographs and actually having some way to attest that that document is actually for you. So it's not just holding it personally in your your, your kind of your possession, which we kind of get into the realms like data and all this kind of stuff we mentioned in the data sovereignty episode. It's also provably saying this actually means something for me, and I can I can prove that by you know showing the picture on this on this document is actually a picture that is for me. And the same with fingerprints. So this is when it started to get a bit more interesting and a bit more maybe um, easy to verify. Yeah, and it's it's clear that you know technology was the driver for improving identification, having more solid attestation of 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 the characteristics, the unique characteristics of people that you mentioned, fingerprinting there as one example, and you know as you go later, you get to things like DNA and and blood testing and things, and it's 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 crazy how recent that is as a development in technology. I mean, you I don't know if you've seen some of the like true crime dramas and things, um, documentaries. Sorry, uh, it's incredible how much ambiguity there was in in uh, in evidence. For, for criminal proceedings before the technology became advanced enough to say definitively, okay, this this evidence is uh, attributed to this person. Uh, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's only a recent thing. And so like, whenever I watch those crime dramas, it was always like, oh, we've got um, his genetics everywhere. It's always like, how many crimes do you imagine there's like semen samples everywhere and you've got like, a, a backlog of all the, all the semen, <laughs> like all the people in the country. It's like, so ridiculous, but they always use it somewhere. They'd be like, we genetically match the semen here to the person over here. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. That's just not how it works, is it? <laughs> no, no, exactly. I mean, it, it is, um, it's unbelievable, the kind of, um, to my mind, how frail the legal system would have been in absence of what we have now, I'm just quite glad we live in this age where, where, where you, you know, the criminals will be identified and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're talking about like attestation as well. I don't want to jump the gun. We've already talked about fingerprints and you kind of see that. I mean, most people will, will recognize that they have biometrics to kind of scan in, you know, with their fingerprint to get into their phone or even eye scan and face scans and all this kind of stuff. But like I saw someone the other day who did a post about like, having like blood scans and genetic scans to have like the purest form and the best form of attestation that are kind of quite scary isn't it that kind of stuff going that yeah. far to have like you know blood storage and all this kind of stuff to, to attest to who you are yeah exactly and it, i think it's also it um speaks to the number of different ways you can be identified as a human being mm. i mean it, it it kind of explodes or we get to the the modern day but even even back then the number of distinct characteristics you have as a human that you can measure is, is actually quite uh, significant. So when you move on then, you know, just we've kind of talked a little bit about biological markers and things, but you also then have um, kind of in the 19th century, the, the big the advent of things like social security systems, where you then tie your identity to social benefits, to state, uh, state issued benefits and things, um, and access to like government services, for example, we start seeing that, I think. Yeah, and they have like, I suppose this kind of relates a bit later, but you'd have like unique identifying codes that represented you and were personally for you in some way. And I saw there were lots of issues around like the first social security systems where it was like, it's like 400,000 people or something like that shared like one social security number and like got the benefits from it or something like this. Like, it, it, oh, really? Day hacks and, yeah, it was quite Where was quite that? Interesting. In America, I think, in like the in the late nineteenth century, or the yeah, something like this, or the mid twentieth century, whenever it was bought in, 
but yeah, some of the earliest hacks, and like obviously this was just them trialing it out in the early days, and there was a lot of issues around that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, one, we've kind of stayed in the realm of physical identity, identity almost, and physical uh, markers of identity, physical systems based uh, around identity. Then we kind of get the we call maybe the birth of digital ID in the late 20th century when you start getting, you know, things like uh, driving licenses and, and ID cards that are uh, linked to digital systems and using kind of computer databases and things. Um, yeah. well, is there anything else I've missed there? I think, yeah, that's a good one. Like, it's interesting that a lot of the, the kind of the need for this or the necessity for this came from, say, automobiles, for example, like the widespread adoption of automobiles meant that there needed to be like um, kind of an efficient way to attest to someone's ability for a driving license, right? And also to, to verify it quite efficiently. And I think this like led to kind of well, an emphasis or a drive in the area of digital ID. And like this was kind of enabled through, you know, computer databases in the late 20th century that we've kind of spoke about in previous episodes. So these databases allowed it the easy management of like large scale identification systems and also like made it more efficient, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, you know, we're not, we're not quite talking yet about the, um, the kind of full blown digital identity systems that you, you kind of are, are looking at today. But there are some, there are some examples where countries really did embrace this change quite early. I mean, I know Estonia, for example, has had mm. forms of digital identity in place, you know, in all kind of government systems from, I think it was as early as the early 2000s, something like 2002, I think they've had this in place for, which is, which is remarkable considering that we don't, you still don't have it in, in all countries in the world and in some, in, in lots of places, it's not particularly advanced yeah. yet. Well, it's interesting, like for some reason, I mean, maybe this prejudice, when I thought about Estonia previously, I was like, ah, oh, you know, okay, probably not as advanced as say the UK. And then, like, I met a friend from Estonia. We became very close, and I went to Estonia and visited a couple of times. And I realized, like, how technologically advanced it was. Like, it's crazy. They, like, invented Skype. Like, they have Wi-Fi absolutely everywhere. They had, like, publicly accessible Wi-Fi in Estonia and in Tallinn mm. specifically for, like, 10 years or something crazy. Like, for some reason, Estonia is really leading the game in a lot of these kind of technologies. Like, and like you mentioned, like, the, the national identification system. They've had, like, decentralized ID, like, for a, a, a bit now, I think. Um, it's just really interesting. There's like a little hub there of kind of technological innovation in this space. Yeah. And it kind of came, you know, talking about 2002, that also aligns with the advent of the internet, as we've spoken about, you know, the early days of Web 1 and moving into Web 2. Uh, that's when we start getting new forms of communication, in particular, you know, mobile phones become popular, email mm. as well as, an, as a way to identify someone. I mean, I know by by now, there are lots of countries that, will have government IDs. I think Italy is, is a good example in, in the EU where you have a, a government system that will push out notifications. You send documents to citizens via uh, email. And so email, you know, for coming from the early days of the internet became a really, really popular source of identity and a way of verifying mm -hmm. identity. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the most common way I think my identity mm -hmm. is verified now, right? You know, those emails you get to say go and click your verification link every time or you get the magic sign-on links i mean some people just don't bother with some some companies don't even use passwords now you just get a sign-on link that, from your email yeah it's crazy well your um your you, you email address is like incredible bad kid jack at 95 it's just uh, it's you know i wouldn't i wouldn't want to lose that either it's a good attestation to who you are as a person 
but yeah, I think, um, like you say, like the, the, in the late 90s, we saw this, the massive rise of like digital identity to different form, you know, being able to create usernames and passwords to access systems. And then there's also like the, the, the kind of the mass um, adoption of e-commerce where, you know, digital identity became really crucial for transactions, like online banking and shopping that required, you know, a reliable way to prove digital identity when someone was making a purchase and verification systems and this kind of pushed the the kind of the area or the ecosystem even further technologically yeah and and as you say the rise of the internet i mean even as you come into the early 2000s and the, and the 2010s kind of early 21st century that shift even from web one to web two as we've talked about where social media becomes much more dominant brings with it a number of different ways you can be identified so you know in particular you get the rise of internet personas or pseudonyms and i know we've had pseudonyms for a very long time you know they would have been applicable um in, in the 19th century and, and we're, we're way way further back you know people writing under pseudonyms but now they're so common on the internet people have their their handles on twitter on uh, mm-hmm. on youtube on on instagram whatever which don't need to be tied to your real world identity other than through maybe an email but there's this kind of many to one relationship now with your online identity and your actual in-person physical identity, let's say. Yeah, I think that's it's particularly important when we're going to talk about you know the fi- final form maybe of digital identity, which is which is self-sovereign identity, which is is definitely coming. Um, spoiler alert! This spoiler alert! This many-to-one relationship is, is very important because it kind of, in a way, it enables privacy. So it's like I can have a pseudonym that I use for, say, my banking account, and I can have a pseudonym that I use for maybe buying tickets to football matches. And I don't need to use the same pseudonym for both. And if, say, things are publicly viewable or there's transparency there, like transactions happen happen on the public blockchain, it makes it more difficult to associate the two maybe on the public blockchain. But also it means that, say, if I'm directly transacting with one, using that pseudonym, they don't know that I'm directly transacting with the other as well. And I think this is quite important, right? Yeah, and I think it's, there are many cases where you do want your pseudonyms to be separate and separate also from your, maybe your public um, Mm -hmm. physical identity, your government identity as well. Um, But there are are other use cases which aren't really served well by the Web2 world, where you might actually want to have them linked together so i'm thinking like bringing your your reputation between Mm. um two different social media platforms right so you change platform or you wanted to add a new one it's quite important to be able to link what you've done on one to another which is not always an easy problem this is the kind of interoperability challenge you have with with digital identity um as it is today you know up to up to kind of 2020 yeah, yeah. And I've seen ones with like gambling, say if someone's like a, a reckless gambler and they've been, there's been restrictions placed on them and they have like markers of harm that that gambling company has to monitor to make sure that they're, they're not, say, a danger to themselves. They don't spend money they don't have, for example. Well, you know, you have a KYC where you register with, you know, gambling company A and they monitor those marks of harm to make sure you don't overspend and you're safe and all the healthy and all this kind of stuff. But if I all of a sudden then go to gambling company B, and start to use them as a service provider as well, and then split mm. the amount of spending between the two, and then not communicating because of these suits. Exactly. That's an issue, right? Yeah, massive issue. Um, and another issue we kind of haven't we've mentioned usernames, but we haven't mentioned the, the the other counterpart, which is the passwords. So with all these online identities and usernames and accounts with different um, you know Web two companies, we also have 
the rise of the use of passwords and as we've spoken mm. about in in the other previous episodes you that brings all these other challenges to do with you know phishing scams um uh, password leaks data breaches that kind of thing like there's this whole plethora of problems and the fact that these are linked to your identity now makes the now makes it so much worse because what you can lose potentially if you lose your credentials if someone takes your password or has gains access to one of these accounts they can potentially impersonate you quite easily yeah i mean the only thing worse than phishing scams is my company's tests for phishing scams and security tests like i get caught with those all the time like phishing scams now are so advanced like it's actually crazy like we had that Raf- rafaela talking about them she got caught and there's quite a few people that i know that have been caught and these like tech savvy people so yeah identity theft and phishing scams are a massive problem that's kind of become apparent because of this and actually another just a point to add to that you know um because we're talking about identity and if you are if you are the victim of one of these scams your your identity details like your your um your email address your phone number your 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 address your your house address what anything like that your name will then get shared around others right so basically oh, victims really? of scams yeah this is a a lot of what? scam <clears throat> scamming companies become essentially data brokers to other scam companies i've been watching a few videos on it recently that are really fascinating i don't know if you've seen there was a documentary around taking down a, a call center scam agency but you know this is the thing right if you, if you if you fall victim to one of these your your date your your identity data is going to start hurtling around and you become much oh more my vulnerable God. that's that's absolutely crazy and then what's the solution is the solution to have like is it to keep it more distributed is single sign on stuff a solution to this where everything's managed by like apple or google or something like this or is it safer to have distributed accounts and distribute distributed users names and passwords for each of them because it's crazy like how many accounts and passwords i have like to store right now i probably have like 40 or different 50 different username and password combinations for all the 40 or 50 different services i use and like, the user experience on that is not good at all that's like a really tricky for me to remember to like have all these things at the same time yeah exactly i don't think there's a there's one easy solution to all this right because as you say if you you introduce things like password managers and you know single use passwords that brings this user experience challenge um, but it still doesn't completely solve the problem and uh, you know as you mentioned single sign on you get your sign in with google sign in with apple sign in with facebook and I, i'm i'm guilty of using those you know at, at being lazy quite often and they they introduce these central points of failure so if you then uh, if, if you then lose your pa- someone hacks your password and, and gains access to your one of these accounts then they can start uh, very easily logging into all these other services which are yeah, yeah. effectively connected to it so yeah i don't think i don't know if there's a, a single particular solution and what as we're going to get on to talking about self-sovereign identity and identity systems in web3 i think there are still big challenges there but a lot of the a lot of the problems in the web2 world are coming from what we spoke about in the data sovereignty episode the fact that you are giving away far too much information to access services. And that's what I mean by, you know, yeah. if, 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 a, if a company gets hacked, then that's when your data goes around the, the scamming world, right? Because they, <laughs> they shouldn't have been, they should have been holding the data in, in the first place. Ideally, you should have been able to prove your identity without giving all that over and letting them and, and, and having the company keep the data. Yeah, yeah. I think like, I suppose some of the, the technological kind of solutions we have to, to this like identity theft stuff to mitigate that is around one multi-factor authentication, right? Which 
I personally hate, like I hate it so much, but I see that it's quite, it's, it's useful. I understand why we need it and it's better than the alternative of me remembering all my passwords sure. constantly. Yeah. Um, the other one that I really do like is biometric, you know, fingerprint scans attesting to my identity. Like it's obviously quite tricky to do that with say mobile devices, web apps, all this kind of stuff that's pushing more and more to say mobile device. Where's I asking I said mobile devices twice there, pushing more to mobile devices rather than laptops and, uh, and computers. And I think that directly aligns with the, the kind of the self-sovereign identity stuff that we're going to talk about as kind of maybe the final evolution of digital identity potentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I, I agree. These these are quite important, uh, even if they, they, they might be cumbersome or introduce new problems. I mean, we're getting more used to things like biometric identification. Like mm -hmm. if you sign up for a, a kind of a challenger bank or something these days, your KYC will often involve you um, having to take a photo and, and having, uh, yeah. say, a sentence or something, which is a kind of form of biometric ID. I think I've recently got a, changed my banking login to now they have login with your voice have you have you come across that uh yeah i have what do you ever pass the human check for the voice test or not yeah i can't access my my bank at all now unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> no but yeah they all kind of do partially solve the problem but i agree you know to kind of bring us on to this this concept of of where we are now and with um digital identity in web3 and self-sovereign identity which we'll kind of define in a moment i think that that is potentially the end state where you're combining a lot of these web two security features with a different paradigm for dual identity in the first place. Yeah. So like you were talking, well, previously about them kind of housing all the identities and all the data on there and where we're at today is around using, you know, blockchain technology for decentralized digital identities where, you know, you shift some, of the control of the user data to the users themselves that are actually controlling that data and away from like the big corporations. And there's a lot of benefits that, that we've spoken about previously. I think like a lot of this stuff directly aligns with the data sovereignty episode that we did, you know, having smaller attack surfaces, you know, if, if all, uh, say, a mil uh, what's Facebook now, 2 billion people's worth of identity information is stored in a central server in Facebook, that's a big attack surface. You know, you want to invest a lot of money to get that get that data. But if we start to you know, push that to users and um, have two billion separate devices, each with one say identity piece of data, underpinned quite importantly with blockchain technology, um, then we have you know a more say kind of powerful security solution. Yeah, exactly. So maybe it's worth us now trying to put a bit of a definition on self-sovereign identity or SSI as we'll kind of refer to it. So, I mean, I'm happy to have a go first, although it's going to be pretty hand wavy because I think, uh, I think it's quite a general term. So kind of to me, self-sovereign identity is the umbrella term that captures this concept of moving away from the, the types of web two digital identity systems. We've just talked about, you know, all these uh, account based things where you, you have to hand over too much information, passwords get stored and leaked and essentially moving, as you said, moving um, the verification and, and storage of identity data to the users instead of holding it in big corporations. It, it, SSI essentially describes the overarching goal and ambition of, of digital identity in, in the Web3 world, I think. I mean, I don't know if you had anything to add to that. No, like, it, that's, that's perfect. Like, I think the, the nuance between, like, decentralized identity and SSI is kind of hard to define. But I think like SSI, like you said there, is is the end goal. And the end goal is a solution where individuals have full control over their, their identity, the data that's in that identity. 
I think a lot of people say there's like no reliance on, you know, trusted third parties or central authorities and all this kind of stuff. I don't think that's true. You're always going to have to have some point of trust, right? Like we can't just have, I produce my own identity, Jack produces his own identity, then we can interact. No, I still need to know that Jack is Jack and we still need, say, the government of the UK to say, you know, Jack is actually Jack and Alec is actually Alec. It, the point is that we reduce that reliance. We don't need the government to say every single time me and you have a conversation, Jack, the UK government says, yeah, yeah, this is Jack and this is Alec. We just say they produce a credential, say this is Jack, and they sign off, it, sign off on it using cryptographic proofs. And then we can interact based on that kind of trusted ecosystem that's been provided by the UK government signing off on that. And yeah, you want to jump in there? Yeah, no, I just wanted to kind of, because you, you're resonating with what I've heard people, some people describe as the definition of identity is kind of, your identity is the aggregate of what people around you will say, right? And attest mm. to to um, characteristics of you as well, because you have them, you know, you do have innate characteristics, but a big part of it is what other people will recognize and, and be able to attest to. So I think this model of, you know, you can claim to be something, but then a lot of the time you need that claim to be verified or authenticated by a third party. That's the kind of just the reality of it. And I think like the way I think of it, you always have a, a root kind of trust. And it's always that, you know, the UK government and gives Jack his equivalent of a driving license in the digital space that says he is Jack and he lives here and he's a real person. And then you can have like kind of different trust points that are built from that anchor say you know if you're in a gaming environment and you want to build up a reputation that you're really good at call of duty or something like that like the degree of trust there is it's less serious right we don't need like full cryptographic proofs like a trusted peer-to-peer -peer interaction all this kind of stuff but you can build up your own kind of your own kind of persona based on what you're actually doing in game rather than needing like a full cryptographic yeah. secure proof over the top of it but if it's say something like you need to spend like twenty thousand pounds uh on a transaction buying a new bmw or something like this then it the kind of the trust there is a bit needs to be a bit stronger right and we probably need yeah. more checks and a bit more kind of security there so like there's different points uh, around this right and this kind of all ties back into the the many to one relationship we're talking about pseudonyms it's not like i need that central point of trust for everything i need to reveal all my core exactly. information every single time we can selectively choose what what's uh, applicable where yeah, different claims about you and your identity will require different levels of proof and different levels of uh, attestation from others. I'm I'm conscious that we're we're still being relatively abstract about like what SSI is and, and decentralized identity, mm -hmm. but I know that there are some quite concrete concepts around it. Like a lot of a lot of the ideas have been standardized now by organizations like uh, W3C. So I don't know, I, I, can you explain, because I know you, you, you're you quite familiar with the terms around how you establish a, a digital identity system, what the kind of entities are involved and how they kind of relate to each other. Yeah, you're right. Like, I think um, the maybe the actors in the ecosystem at a high level are, are quite defined and they lend themselves a lot from like traditional identity systems. So the kind of the key actors or the kind of, yeah, that we're talking about are we have issuers, holders and verifiers at quite a high level so it's like the issuer could be i keep saying it but the uk government they give you your passport jack they give you your driving license and maybe a university would be another good example they issue you your degree certificate okay so they're like the certificate authority and they're the ones that can credential you and say jack has a driving license jack has this degree yeah. all this kind of stuff so they're they're the the trusted party there and like i say 
we'll all we'll always need that trusted party. Everyone will always kind of rely on a trusted party, just re maybe reducing the reliance. So the other party is the holders. So in that case, Jack, it's you, the the kind of the subject it's often referred to as well. So it's the, yeah. the, the credentials we talked about previously, the information pertains to you. It's given by the issuer, but it pertains to you. It says that you can drive. It says that you have this degree. And then the final party is the verifier. They're the people that are actually interested in proving that this information is true and that it actually relates to you. So it could be a police officer that's pulled you over for a DUI or something like that. They want to prove that your license is real, for example. You're or from experience example. there, Alec. <laughs> no, 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 never, never, never. No points on my license. Uh, probably because I mostly don't drive. Um, and Or it could be a recruiter or a company that wants to prove that you actually have a degree and it's actually a real degree that applies to you. So they're the three parties. Um, so the issuer, they issue credentials to the holder and the verifier verifies those credentials of the holder. So there, there's a relationship there. And I think that's quite a standard relationship in digital identity before blockchain was introduced. So the interesting thing about SSI and decentralized identity is that when we're signing credentials now, we're actually using cryptographic signatures that intrinsically link the, the, the credential itself to the information that's contained in the driving license to the person as well to say that it relates to this holder specifically and from the issuer. So we've got a way to easily verify all that information in one go. And we kind of underpin that using the blockchain. So we can put that information on the blockchain to get all the benefits that we've previously spoken about, like the immutability, the ability to have transparency and provably say that this information is up to date and things like this. And when we're saying like a lot of people want to remove the need for trusted parties, what they're actually saying is we have the trusted party that instigates the initial credentialing and giving the credential. And then after that, rather than the verifier needing to go to that issuing party every time they want to check that Jack actually has a degree, they can actually rely to an extent on the blockchain and say, do I check that this is still valid, for example? And that becomes a much more efficient process. Like if you've ever tried to verify a university degree, it's a long task. Like universities aren't open, you know, 24-7. It takes them weeks to get back to emails, say, is this real? Yeah. Imagine if I could just put a certificate on the blockchain, know that it's from the, the university itself by knowing what their public key is basically or the signing tool they use and then instantly verify it. I mean, that's like a really efficient system. And I've seen like some of the stats around, I think McKinsey did a massive report on if there was a fully instigated SSI model in some like Western countries, it would lead to an increase in GDP of six to thirteen percent just from efficiency, wow. convenience, yeah. fluidity, ability to just jump into different services and goods constantly. It's it's a hugely game changing SSI. Yeah, I think that's that's why I definitely see it as such a Web three concept. Is that it's a much much more efficient way, as you say, of of doing and verifying identity. You know, it, it just makes more sense. And the kind of two components you were mentioning on, like, why is that the case? Yeah, you have you have the blockchain as, as a persistent, uh, reliable source of data for lots of these things. And we'll come on to some other kind of terms like DIDs in a moment. But the, the blockchain is fundamentally a, a great platform to build a, uh, a digital identity system on, decentralized identity system on. And then the cryptography itself as well. Is, is almost this tool that's allowing for verification, like the, the advent yeah. of, I mean, cryptography isn't that, modern cryptography is the kind of things we're actually talking about here are only kind of 30, 40 years old, like public key mm. infrastructure systems that they are quite new. And 
these are what allow lots of the credentials to be stored with the individual because you can publicly verify something without knowing the actual information. That's kind of the, the key principle. Um, yeah, and I think something I didn't say is that like the information is held by the user still in like a perfect SSI environment. Like they still own, say, the, their driving license and all the data within it on their device. So it doesn't necessarily have to be stored in like a central server that everyone can potentially hack into. And it's just like when I reveal the data on my mobile device to say, so a, a verifier who's interested in it, they can verify the integrity and authenticity of that data using yeah. public key infrastructure that you've already mentioned in cryptographic proofs. Yeah, a kind of simple way, maybe way to talk about it is like the data is private and then the proof is public or is something that can exactly. be made public, that kind of, yeah. Exactly. Um, and the proof itself doesn't reveal that much information. The thing that's actually on the exactly. blockchain doesn't reveal any information, particularly about that data. Yeah. So I think maybe just before we move on about from our kind of base definitions, it's worth defining two quite popular terms. So one of them is, and it doesn't help that we've got decentralized identity and also <laughs> um, uh, decentralized identifiers, but in general, we just refer to them as DIDs. And you also have um, verifiable credentials, which is kind of a lot of what you've been talking about already with credentials that you'd issue and they're referred to as VC. Um, so maybe I'll tackle the, the DIDs first. So my understanding is that a, a decentralized identifier is, is, is similar to what you've been describing, but it, it refers to the actual thing that uniquely identifies you in the digital mm -hmm. ecosystem. So it has to be yeah. something that is globally unique. There's like a, there is like a one-to-one -one mapping between you as a human entity and this digital world so this is what, what gives you the anchor point into the identity system so as as a, as a user of a self-sovereign identity system you would have a did you would have a a, a unique digital uh, decentralized identifier and the other component of that is often linked to something what's, what's called a did document which contains kind of the basic information about how that information relates to to you and it won't necessarily include any personal information normally it will just include mm -hmm. some kind of cryptographic information as you were saying some certificate on some public key that means you can prove statements or statements can be proven yeah. about you right yeah and i think the, the re that's really great like summary and i think the really interesting thing is about dids is that on this like w3 standard that's kind of emerging as like the standard for for ssi is that the individual fully controls that, right? That's not, shouldn't really be given by like a central authority. They should be able to spin up however many they want. Could it be you know, thousands, hundreds, millions? But it also doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? It's just say a string that is unique and could pertain to me. But say if I want to go on, you know, I want to buy something online and to prove I'm over 18, my did doesn't mean anything. I still need verifiable credentials that relate okay. to that did to actually get some usefulness from it. And I think if we if we move on to the verifiable credentials that are kind of hinted towards, they're like digital statements that are made by yeah. issuers like governments or you know universities and things like this about the subject, which can be you know cryptographically verified by a third party. Okay. But it's like really yeah. they're the you need DIDs plus the verifiable credentials to start to get the usability and the actual kind of use cases that we'll move on to a bit later. Yeah, and I think maybe one thing to add there to distinguish DIDs and, and verifiable credentials, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in my mind, it's like DIDs are something which can be self-issued if you want. You could mm -hmm. you could establish your own unique digital identifier and the uh, corresponding DID document. 
but then the verifiable credentials are the things that would be issued by other people on that did right so you could issue your did but then the government would issue the verifiable credential the uh, university would issue the verifiable credential uh, on you essentially exactly and i think this is kind of like the misunderstanding that emerges sometimes when people say there'll be no need for central trusted parties and all this kind of stuff is yeah to an extent that might be true people can spin up dids self-allocate dids whatever they want and maybe for some interactions like you just want a game on something like that that's fine you can just use that did to interact in the metaverse whatever but for a lot of interactions we need to prove you're a person prove that you're 18 all this kind of stuff it's the verifiable credentials that are given by a trusted third party basically that will actually enable a lot of use cases and applications to prove who you are and who your identity and what your characteristics are yeah exactly and as you were saying you still need these trusted third parties but they're on the issuance of the credentials not the actual issuance of the identity basically yeah exactly and i think a really interesting thing about the w3c standard as well is that it, on the verification side it's actually one of the, the objectives that the issuing third party, like the government who gives you a driving license, shouldn't know when there's a verification that takes place. So like the UK government shouldn't know if you go to an off license and use your passport digitally to say you're above 18, for example. And that's quite an interesting kind of objective of, of SSI mm -hmm. from the W3C standards. Okay, well, why don't we consult our, our friend, as I always call him, uh, ChatGPT, to just double check on, on the definitions and make sure we've, we've kind of covered everything so far. So ChatGPT says, in the context of Web3, digital identity refers to a set of verifiable, self-sovereign and decentralized digital attributes or credentials associated with a specific entity, such as an individual, organization, device or application. These credentials can be used to present, verify and manage the identity, the identity of the entity on the internet without the need for centralized authorities or intermediaries. The control and management of this identity data rests with the entity itself, enhancing privacy, security, and user agency. So yeah, not bad. I think um, maybe I would take a little bit of issue there with how it's saying, you know, without the need for centralized authorities, because we've kind of established you still need that mm. for the verifiable credential side, but maybe not on the management of the actual identity itself. Yeah, definitely. Like we're always going to need a, a trusted entity like be it the government, be it the university, like we do need someone to credential us in, in most use cases. I'm saying most use cases, maybe not all use cases, especially for the, the kind of the, the low trust or um, ones like gaming and things like that, where you actually don't really care who you're interacting with so much and the identity doesn't matter too much. But at that stage, like the identity doesn't matter either, right? Because you could just use an IP address or something like that. So maybe yeah. it is, it, it actually do need them in actuality for, for most um, applications where we need identity. I think an interesting thing about that ChatGPT definition was that it also said it's not just an individual how we've kind of contextualized it. Mm. It's also organizations, devices, applications. I really like that because I, I think we've kind of, well, we, we've uh, put out the uh, IoT episode, right? And we've talked about IoT devices and AI as well, having more agency and being like entities in their own right. And when we think about identity, we obviously always humanize, we think about people. But I think more and more in like the hopefully utopian and not dystopian future, we are going to see the need to identify devices and they're going to be able to do things and need to prove their identity as well. I think that's like a really interesting use case for this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you're already hearing people talking about uh, civil rights for, for AI systems. So you'll definitely be having a identity for, for AI if that if that goes any further but maybe to not stray too much again into philosophy and I think there's definitely lots to talk about in a future episode on that kind of stuff but 
what why don't we kind of bring it back to you know what's the actual relationship with web3 because we have tr thrown in lots of these terms mm -hmm. from web3 we've explained a little bit about why we think web3 is, is is related but i think we can make it a bit more concrete so i, I know you have some thoughts on you know how uh, we're moving from our normal digital id to ssi so i don't know if you have a way of kind of contextualizing yeah. that in web3 I think, like I see a lot of parallels between SSI and Web3. And I think if we think of both as like the end points on a continuum, so the one continuum is, you know, centralized identity to decentralized identity to SSI, which is the final goal. And, you know, the kind of the end goal of that is around decentralization, user empowerment, right? And I think this, that's the same goals that apply to Web 1, to Web 2, to Web 3. It's moving more and more, well, it's moving more towards decentralization and user empowerment. And I think what they, they are, they're kind of the successes, I think, in a way, uh, are related. You know, if we think of Web 3 as providing like the infrastructure for peer-to-peer for -peer, and then the self-sovereign identity enables user ownership and control without the complete reliance continuously on, on a central authority. So I think there's a mutual kind of dependence for success there. Like we're thinking mm -hmm. about interaction in the metaverse and moving from application to application. You need like a, a real portable identity solution um, for that. Yeah, uh, I 100% agree. Um, maybe also just to specifically pick up on the infrastructure piece, right? I think... As we've said with other things as well but you know i think blockchain in particular and a lot of the tools like the cryptography and the proof systems like zero knowledge proof we're seeing uh in web3 they are just the natural infrastructure they're the natural uh tools that you'd use to implement an ssi system to achieve mm. these things on the end goal uh, that you're talking about i mean blockchain has pretty much made the term decentralization uh <laughs> One, one that everyone knows about now from being something that would have been pretty obscure 10 years ago. And now it seems to be something that people will, will slap onto everything. And I think you can go way too far with that. But at the same time, as you say, it is getting away from holding everything in one central system to holding it in mm -hmm. a more distributed system. And crucially, again, putting the data back in the, the, the hands of the user. And, you know, we're already seeing blockchains in particular being used for that reason people it's, it's the obvious choice so if you look at something like the um the side tree protocol this is something that was developed by by some researchers um at microsoft and they, they basically developed this did protocol so the, you know how the de uh, decentralized identifier looks how it operates how you manage it how you add verifiable credentials they built a system to do all this and they actually anchored it in, in the bitcoin blockchain and it's it's mm. it's it's something that is designed to be portable between blockchains. It is compliant with the W3C standards we, we mentioned, but it, it, you know it's it's mad that that this has been taken seriously by companies like Microsoft, and they're using public blockchain infrastructure to to, to achieve those goals. That's very exciting, and and now that we're talking about something like. There are like key pillars in SSI and you've mentioned it there, like portability is a big one. We've mentioned privacy and security. And I think as with a lot of things, we're realizing this is a big topic that warrants, you know, two or maybe even three episodes to really unpack properly. And I think we'll come on to those those pillars 
in, in the next episode and also the challenges and concerns that are associated with that. But I think sure. for this episode, we should really maybe jump into some use cases that make it tangible and exciting and practical for everyday users to understand why SSI is important. Jack, what is the, the kind of leading exciting use case in your mind for an SSI solution? So I think the one I'm really excited about is basically the, in the job market in employment because it brings together like two or three of these different topics we've been talking about in, into one place. So I think the verifiable credentials for your basically everything that's on your CV is going to be really big in the future, you know, be, for employers in particular to be able to trust that what is the content of your your CV is actually accurate <laughs> and true, right? I know people, people it's, it's a common thing about people. It's, it's People always say don't lie on your CV, but many, many people do lie on their CVs. Mm. And for the employers and, and you know, recruiters who, who recommend candidates, they want to be able to check that the authenticity of, of your degree, of your professional qualifications and we're already seeing it happen loads and i think this will become the goal this will become the standard they'll have a blockchain based did system with verifiable credentials mm -hmm. issued by uh, by higher education institutions by yeah. professional certifiers it's just going to become the standard so that th that's one aspect of how i think it'll play a role the yeah, other yeah. Then spoken is... like a true good citizen by the way who has a, an accurate cv with no bs in there Exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm one of the good guys. Um, so the, the other aspect, which is because that's all from, I'd say that's more from the employer's perspective. I mean, it's good for people who are honest because it will bring the standard up for everyone else. But uh, but it, it will also really benefit the people who are looking, the, the job seekers, right? People who are giving the CVs out because I know there's, a, there's this kind of culture, I think, of bit like what I said with the data brokers and, and scams, your, your, your details being circulated. You, how do you know where your CV is going when you, when you pass it mm. over? If, if, when, if you get asked by a recruiter, to, to, you know, they say, can, can I see your CV? You have no rights and well, you have no way of um, enforcing your rights. You have no way of making sure they're not going to circulate that with 100 different companies that are going to see your, your details. Yeah, yeah. You just don't know where it's going, right? And I imagine I recruiters think, just looking at my CV and laughing in the back office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's it's going to get embarrassing. It was only meant to embarrass one person. But um, yeah. a lot of the Web3 tools and techniques like selective disclosures, zero knowledge proofs, and just general kind of slightly more boring, but access control management and certificates that we've, we've talked about previously. So when you give your CV over to a recruiter, you'll give it over with permissions. It won't just be a PDF. That you send on LinkedIn, it'll be it'll be a blockchain-based system where you know you say you, you have access to this and only the person who has uh, control of this public-private key pair can read it. So you might encrypt it before you send it, for example, um, to, to to a particular key pair that is, is tied to mm. someone. Um, I think that's going to become really important in the future to make it much more honest from the perspective of of if you're seeking a job, basically. I think that and that, that I think that's just a very cool way to tie up both sides of the of the equation oh yeah it's all about the job market baby like that yeah it's really <laughs> cool super excited i think like on that stuff like we talk about like read access and access one time like a lot of it is application specific though right like it's mm. really you have to have an application that would enforce that with the i mean with the kind of the blockchain underpinning that that would actually allow you know a one-time spend access to actually read the pdf once and then revoke access following that and I think that's something that needs to come, right? It's quite e not easy, but it's 
somewhat simple to implement that on a blockchain, the, a spending of a token and all this kind of stuff. But we're yeah. actually not really seeing the, the kind of the applications on the mobile end and the user end that actually enforce that kind of stuff right now. And I think, yeah, it would be really powerful if we could do that. Yeah, for sure. So what, what about you, Alec? Is there any, what's, what's most, I know you love digital identity, so you must have an application <laughs> you, you're really excited about for it. I love, I love everything. I love every topic we've done so far. Um, so I think mine is something that everyone understands. It's like, you know, have you been to an airport, Jack? I have, yes. Surprisingly, wow. I know you wouldn't get it, guess it from my lack of tan, but yeah. <laughs> uh, how many checks were there when you went through the airport? Oh, this, yeah, this is something I, I can see where you're going with this because I it depends wildly. Like uh, International, you go into, let's say you go to America. Let's say, let's say three. But what I will say is sometimes I've noticed that you get double checked, right? You go, you go through one barrier and then you walk 100 yards uh, and they check you again. It's like nothing's changed, you know. I hope you don't get called out in like a comedy show. You'd be the worst audience participant ever. I expected a simple Sorry. answer. <laughs> You're making this about you. No, Sorry, you, you, so, just, yeah. you just you just you just you you picked up on a, a pet peeve of mine. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, you know, you go to an airport. There are lots of checks. You have ticket checks. You have passport checks. You have boarding checks, visa checks, destination hotel checks in some countries. Obviously, COVID tech, oh, yeah. tech checks as well. You have, you know, records checks. It's carnage. It's absolute chaos. Like, it's, there are like, you know, eight to nine checks sometimes per international flight on, you know, going out, landing and getting there wow. and all this kind of stuff. And imagine like when you're doing it on behalf of your kids as well. Like, it, it's absolutely crazy having to imagine like all of these different documents. Some can be digitalized. Some cannot be digital. They're just all over the place. And you have to find the right one and make sure it's like attesting to you. And you'll see that like, you know, for say a visa check, they'll also have to check your identity as well. And these are two separate documents in some cases, which is crazy. Now, you know, the solution for SSI is so obvious there. Imagine all of these like different checks and documents in one app that allow, you know, automatic verification of all of them amongst all of the others as well. Like the benefits are so obvious there. You have like streamlined travel, data minimization and no centralized database potentially they're prone to breach breaches but you also you know control and maintain the privacy and like the efficiency of checking with just one mm -hmm. app on your phone and not having to handle all these different documents and get different apps up and all this kind of stuff it's just so obvious there and i think when early when i was talking about you know the gdp increase for ssi solutions being like adopted uh, widely in like a, a, an economy of like eight to 14%, I think it was like, it's things like that, like the lack of paperwork mm. and the efficiency of being able to sign up and not duplicating KYC checks and all this kind of stuff. That's where you're going to see the real benefits to the economy. And I think that kind of stuff really excites me. Yeah, no, I, I didn't realize it would excite me until you said it like that. Cause yeah, <laughs> I, 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 the last, the last flight I did go on, I both remember getting checked two or three times without changing location essentially so it's like why do i need to check my passport three times to get on and also it was in an unbelievable queue and i nearly missed my flight because it's such an efficient process right now there you go see this is a real pain point i think a lot of people like actually understand it um but yeah that's why i find like such an exciting use case Awesome. Well, yeah, I think I think both of those are interesting, and there's going to be loads more that I think we'll have to do another episode on, as you as you said. But I think, yeah, we've we've covered some pretty good ground. I think we've laid the foundations of what digital identity is, what this overarching concept of SSI is, the Web three kind of end goal, and then some of the components mm -hmm. in that of, of DIDs and, and VC. And uh, yeah, we'll maybe talk about some of the principles of a good 
uh, digital identity system in the future, maybe. Yeah, definitely. I think in the next episode, we'll cover some of the, the fundamental pillars of SSI, what the aims are. We've kind of alluded to some of them there, but also what some of the challenges and concerns are. Mm. And hopefully we'll also go into some of the technologies that underpin them in a bit more detail. And, you know, maybe the most exciting is what the future looks like, how we tie mm. all of this digital identity stuff into, you know, some of the other buzzwords that are coming out, like AI and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, I think that wraps up this first part. Thank you to those listening, wherever you may be, and join us next time as we untangle a little more of O3. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.